Hey, everybody. Today, the 11th episode of Crafting with Ursula is about something I was so excited to explore with today's guest, Gabrielle Bellet, the power of names and naming. Because the power of names and naming is so obviously a huge part of Le Guin's work. But the more you look at the way she explores the power of names for good and for harm, whether discovering one's true name, being named and by whom, or removing names, and what we might discover when we do, it becomes clear that the enduring interest in the strange allure of names for Le Guin speaks to something vital to her work about language itself and language in relation to identity, but also how language for Le Guin down to our choices at the sentence level, is the ground from which she engages not just with word magic in regard to spells, but with gender, class, race, capitalism, social change, political dreams, and much more. And these questions are also ones that animate the work of Gabrielle Ballot, whether she's writing about Le Guin herself or everyone from Neil Gaiman to James Baldwin, as well as writing about moving through the world as a multiracial transgender writer from the Caribbean. More often than not, I preface these Crafting with Ursula conversations by noticing how certain episodes feel like pairings, whether Adrian Marie Brown and Kim Stanley Robinson both addressing questions of social justice within Le Guin's science fiction, or Karen Joy Fowler and Isaac Yuen looking at the natural world and the place of animals in Le Guin's worlds, or William Alexander and Julie Phillips looking at writing for children and the writing mother, respectively. But this episode, I think, most calls back to the very first one, which seems fitting as we come near to the end of the year and the series, that there is a sort of circling back. Becky Chambers and I talked about creating aliens and alien cultures in that first episode, and we focused a lot on the left hand of darkness and then the later work she did to re-enter, expand, and complicate that same world years later. We return today to the question of how we describe the other, the stranger, the alien. How do we position ourselves to otherness in our language and in the world? And what does the way we describe tell us about ourselves? It's no coincidence that for Le Guin, magic is word magic, whether someone is being named by the computer of an anarchist collective or by a mentor or wizard, or slipping out from under the weight of a name that keeps one from being who they really are, Gabby and I look together at this strange and ever-shifting relationship between language and self in her work and in Le Guin's. If you enjoyed today's conversation and the series as a whole, consider joining the community of listener supporters. Every supporter gets a resource-rich email with each episode, and today, I'm sure, is the largest, most robust one yet. And the other potential benefits and rewards 
Le Guin specific and otherwise, are vast and considerable. You can check them all out at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's episode of Crafting with Ursula with Gabrielle Bellot. The connection between what I do as a writer, make, making worlds out of words, and what my wizards do, using words to kind of remake the world and change the world and cast spells, and that magic in Earthsea is word magic. I mean, obviously, to me, words do make magic in a sense. They make something new or different. What I'm after ultimately is to make something beautiful. Just like a potter making a pot or a sculptor carving a statue. Art has to do with making something that is satisfying and beautiful. I see my job as, as holding doors open or opening windows, but who comes in and out the doors? What you see out the window? How do I know? My responsibility is just to keep the mind open, not close it off. That's enough right there. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Crafting with Ursula. Today's guest, writer and editor Gabrielle Bellot, received both an MFA and a PhD in creative writing from Florida State University, and for many years now has been staff writer for Literary Hub, where she writes feature articles on a wide range of topics, everything from looking at Virginia Woolf's writing on illness and disability to the recent adaptation of Neil Gaiman's The Sandman, from the literal and figurative whiteness of Moby Dick to what exactly should count as trans literature. Bellot is also contributing editor and head instructor at Catapult and writes the column Wander Woman for them, a column which examines books, the body, memory, and more. And one of her pieces in Wander Woman, The Curious Language of Grief, was cited as one of the most notable essays of the year in Best American Essays 2021. Her writing more generally has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Atlantic, The Guardian, Shondaland, Vice, Tor, The Los Angeles Review of Books, and many other places. It's been anthologized in many places as well, including in Body Language, Indelible in the Hippocampus, Writings from the Me Too Movement, Can We All Be Feminists, and We Wear the Mask, 15 True Stories of Passing in America. Bellot is the recipient of the 2016 Pointer Fellowship from Yale, holds a legacy fellowship from Florida State, has been a panelist and or guest lecturer at events put on by everyone from PEN America to NYU, was the presenter for Library of America's event, Reading James Baldwin Now, on his book If Beale Street Could Talk, as well as being a panelist at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine's interpreting James Baldwin Now event. In her own words, Bellot's writing tends to, quote, focus on global literature, LGBTQIA identities, literary history, exile, 
the Caribbean broadly. She grew up in the Commonwealth of Dominica. And what it might mean, at least for the day you ask her, to navigate the world as a multiracial transgender woman of color. Gabrielle Bellat also does freelance editing and other projects from sensitivity reads to manuscript critiques. And she herself is working on a collection of essays as well as her first novel. The reason I reached out to Gabby is because she has also written about Le Guin, whether writing about race and gender in The Wizard of Earthsea or the amorphous fictional space of the ones who walk away from Omelas. But what really caught my eye was her tribute to Le Guin just after she died, which had a unique, compelling, and persuasive frame from which to look at Le Guin's fiction, where she wrote, Some writers seem like they won't ever die, like they'll keep smiling and cracking quips forever. For me, Ursula Le Guin was one of those, like Gabriel Garcia Marquez, James Baldwin, Derek Walcott. Le Guin taught me so much. Yet the lesson I remember best, the one she returned to so often, was about the power of naming. She goes on to talk about the power of names for good and for ill, the power of naming and the power of unnaming across Le Guin's work, which makes me so thrilled to do this deep dive together with Gabby on names and their power. Welcome to Crafting with Ursula, Gabrielle Bellot. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, before we talk about our topic today, just just introduce us a little bit to some of your, your first encounters with Le Guin as a reader, more generally. I first encountered Le Guin, as I think many budding queer writers uh, probably did with The Left Hand of Darkness. So as you said, I grew up in the Commonwealth of Dominica in in the Caribbean, uh, and I was a young queer person in the closet for virtually all of my life there, you know, before I moved to New York. And being in the closet was a very interesting place uh, to exist in, you know, on a small island where everybody kind of knows everybody. So when I encountered The Left Hand of Darkness, which, by the way, was entirely by chance, I, I hadn't come to this book with any sort of foreknowledge about its fascinating ways of exploring non-binary gender, you know, genders that don't have to simply be one thing eternally. Uh, I hadn't come to it with any expectations of how it would talk about the gaze from, uh, you know, either a person who's male-bodied or more broadly, a terrestrial human, you know, none of this was there. I just came to this entirely by chance. But when I read it, I remember feeling this, almost like this small flame was starting to burn inside me. I I, I didn't fully understand what that meant, but it stuck with me. Mm. That There is something about this world in which gender did not have to be fixed, in which you could enter a camera, uh, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. I've, I've never quite known the, be- the best way to pronounce that. <laughs> That's uh, how I pronounce it. it. <laughs> uh, in which you, you could enter the state uh, as the inhabitants of winter or, or 
uh, Geffen do you and you become male-bodied or female-bodied in a sort of conventional cisgender uh, understanding of, of what that means and you know you you got to be something different from month to month from period to period and I, I just found that so liberating it, it was remarkable I, I hadn't really encountered anything quite like this before and again I do have to emphasize that I don't think I fully understood this either I recently reread The Left Hand of Darkness uh, and reading it almost 15 years later, as of any book, you know, is an opportunity to re-encounter something because all of art is an encounter. It's always an encounter with, with something, uh, arguably with someone. And so The Left Hand of Darkness uh, then was something that I think began to light away for me you know, using that image of the candle again. And now uh, in my 30s, you know, I look at this book and, and I think there, there's so much about it that's astonishing for its time. There's certainly a lot about it uh, as uh, critics have, you know, talked about endlessly that in, in some ways is not as progressive as it might seem uh, today. But I think all of that is interesting to talk about. And Le Guin, you know, became a, a part of my world because she did something that stuck with me. Mm. And later, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas was another, you know, it, it did something similar by creating some kind of world, some kind of image that just stuck with me. I, I, I couldn't quite. I, I didn't know what to do with it, but it just was a part of me, if that makes sense. It does. And yeah, I've I felt that way for a few of our other pieces, but I think those two, and also she unnames them, mm -hmm. are are the three that just, I don't know, they've they've been parts of me for many years now, and I don't think they're going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been really excited for this conversation for for many reasons. And for one, I've, I've myself have been curious about Le Guin's relation to language and naming something that was obviously very important to her, but I think it's also something that's hard to put into language. For instance, in my first conversation with Le Guin, when we were talking about technologies and how resource extractive hard tech is often talked about as the only form of technology and how in her mind the kitchen knife was actually a perfect technology and one that endures and can be passed down. In that conversation, I put forth language as another sort of human technology and, and she pushed back against this, against the notion of language as a tool, as a tool in this way, but rather for her, it's something innate and far more strange. And, and in fact, that is what she said. She said, it's strange. And the place where I think most people might first think of Le Guin and the power of words and names is the world of Earthsea, because the power of spells is related to knowing someone's true name, but also because we're introduced to our main protagonist, the boy wizard, early on in this epic in three different ways. We learn that he has 
like all of us, a name that's given at birth by his parents, Dooney, one that in this story is actually of very little importance and quite marginal. Uh, and then there's the name he's given by others who observe him in the world, not how he's named aspirationally by his parents, but by how he is seen or how he seems, which is Sparrowhawk. And finally, there is his true name, which is not something he automatically knows, but a name he has to discover. And sometimes it's even shown to you by another. Um, so already, just in this one book, we have, I think, a complex relationship to names. And I see a through line between these questions of Le Guin's and a lot of your own writing, which was part of my impetus of, of, of reaching out to you. For instance, in your essay, A Young Woman Called Death, where you look at the questions raised by Neil Gaiman's choice to gender the character Death as a woman in the new Sandman television series, um, especially given how death is often personified as, as male or without gender, where you say, how we describe or personify things says as much about them as it may about us, and perhaps nothing says more about our lives than how we personify death. And this connects in my mind to many of your articles about the imagination and sci-fi and fantasy too, where you note how often we end up imagining so-called alien life as very human, as very humanoid, uh, very much like us rather than other, a topic that I unpacked some with Becky Chambers for the first episode of the series. In, in one of these essays of yours, you say, I think in a kindred spirit to your quote about death, how we envision alien life, even in fiction, often reflects us in turn often betrays our own limitations and assumptions. How we portray the other is a sundial of the self. Much of your work to me seems to be in one way or another about description or the failure to describe or about when a person is over-described or over-determined in a way that connects back to Le Guin's engagement with naming for me. But I don't actually know if you see it this way yourself. Do you see a through line? perhaps from your interest in Le Guin's power of naming, the way you framed your tribute to her um, and your own work more broadly in this way? I think that's a really wonderful question. And I'm really glad that you made these connections because I do think there's a through line, you know, between this idea of names having a particular and at, at times extraordinary power and more more broadly what it means to frame something you know to make something comprehensible to us by the words that we choose to describe it so we're always naming something whether that's literally giving somebody an appellation or a designation or trying to call something out, you know, look at what's happening there. Look at this corruption, look at this terrible thing, or look at this wonderful thing. Uh, th that too is a form of naming. But, you know, in that essay about, about personifications of death, in that essay about uh, alien life, you know, 
I was also quite interested in this idea of, you know, the, the way that we choose to uh, personify something often says, as you quoted, as much about us as it does about the things themselves, because we're not necessarily getting at the thing itself that we're talking about. We are sort of trying to make it uh, small and palatable to us. And that usually means granting it some sort of human-like characteristics to make it a little bit easier to understand. If we were to encounter what quote-unquote true alien life might look like if such a thing exists, I think it's very likely that it would be utterly incomprehensible to us at first glance. We might not even know that it was life the way that we understand it. And I think that's wonderful, actually. I do. You know, I'm kind of intoxicated by the idea of encountering the so-called other, because I think by doing that, we allow ourselves to become part of that so-called other. And by doing so, we allow something that is strange to become a little bit less strange. But we're always doing this through language, whether or not we're aware of it. So when I talk about the power of names, you know, I'm thinking of the way that we try to make something understandable by the way that we choose to uh, describe it. So yeah, I think over and over in my work, I keep returning to this theme. And Le Guin was just, I think, one of the more direct examples of a writer who really confronts this, who really understands the many complicated meanings of what it says about uh, our species, I suppose, that we want to give something a name, and not just one name, but as you mentioned of Earthsea, sometimes many names. Well, I I wanted to mention something regarding the notion of a a true name, or the notion of having a true name for Le Guin, because it's something that's just sort of lingers in my mind um, and that I wonder about that I don't know that there's an answer for. But her father was an early cultural anthropologist and was really much older than most people's fathers are and were, um, having Le Guin when he was in his 50s with a wife that was more than 20 years younger than him. So Le Guin's father was actually born in the 1870s and he's intimately connected to the story of Ishi, the so-called last Yahi Indian, whose tribe was decimated by dispossession, genocide, and disease associated with the California gold rush. And Ishi was in hiding with his mother and a couple other relatives for four decades, the last three years of which he was apparently entirely alone and came starving into a white town where he was arrested. And for a short time he spent in jail um, was a giant spectacle, the wild man of Oroville, where hundreds if not thousands of people daily would come to stare at him. Le Guin's father arranges to get him out of jail, to bring him to the Museum of Anthropology for linguistic study. Um, He's given a job as a janitor, 
and lives in the museum as a living specimen of sorts, putting on performances and demonstrations, creating tools, having his songs recorded for the anthropologists and museum visitors. When I think of this, on the one hand, I think of the girl in The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas. I've always wondered why the tortured girl the girl who must suffer for the benefit of everyone else in society isn't locked in a dungeon or in a basement, which seems logical, it would be one of those, but in a broom closet, essentially a janitor's closet. And from there, people come also to stare at her. I've also wondered if this is related to what she learned about Ishi, someone who died maybe 15 years before she was born, and, and someone who she really didn't learn about until her mother was writing the book about Ishi when Ursula was probably around 30 years old, but before Ursula had written any of her own books. I bring this up because Ishi is not Ishi's name. Apparently, Ishi simply means man in the Yana language, and it is the name that Ursula's father and Ishi settle upon when Ishi wouldn't give his name, because according to the tradition of the tribe, you do not speak your true name until formally introduced by another Yahi Indian. Ishi said when asked his name, quote, I have none because there were no people to name me. Le Guin doesn't assert or deny that this could be an influence, one among many perhaps, but I feel as we explore naming, knowing that Le Guin is coming to her own as a writer at the same time as her mother has this best-selling book about Ishii. And that's where she's learning this detail about the fate of the California indigenous peoples. Um, that we have to at least mention this, that naming, being named or refusing to name can be related to autonomy and dignity. Um, but I wondered if it, if, if just me bringing this up, um, I don't know if it provokes any further thoughts for you generally about, about naming or the way she names, um, or this, this complex relationship in, in Earthsea of three different ways you could be named. I think the nod you did to the connection between the, the names that we are given you know versus the names that are used for us uh even arguably the names we are marketed with you know and 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 autonomy i think that connection is very interesting because the first thing it makes me think of is from a caribbean context or more broadly a sort of european colonial context the idea of what it means to directly talk about the African influences in so many Caribbean countries and how that interacts with just about every aspect of life, but perhaps most of all, language. And I, I bring this up because for many decades, critics who would read literature from the Caribbean, but also literature from North America more broadly, uh, specifically 
uh, African American cultural productions, you know, would routinely dismiss the African connections to our work, you know, so when we talk about what it means to be a Caribbean writer, an African American writer, a writer of color more broadly in the sort of uh, colonial world, we, we come up against those who feel a kind of shame in acknowledging that, no, we aren't just entering a European or sort of white American tradition. We are also inextricably intertwined with African words, African mythological concepts, and so many other things of African rhythms, even just the this, this sort of basic musicality of the way that some people speak. That there are so many ways that this has permeated our worlds. But to talk about this was anathema. And so uh, until writers like Kamal Brathwaite, who I've had a very deep interest in for quite some time, you know, un until writers like Brathwaite talked about this, it was just something that you were not supposed to really talk about. And Brathwaite famously uh, put that out there. He talked about what he called nation language, which was this idea that the vernacular the, the way that people would speak amongst each other, the way that was often called, quote unquote, broken English, as if there was something wrong with it, uh, that this reflected something that we had taken from uh, our transatlantic past, and that this was something powerful, not something to be suppressed. But naming that you know, directly connecting it to to Africa or to Africanity, as, as he put it, made Brathwaite very controversial. Uh, something similar was true for uh, Ralph Ellison uh, in the United States, because Ellison talked an, a number of times in his essays about this idea of African-American vernaculars having, well, African influences. But to, to talk about this was to confront this idea that not only were we influenced by our past, but that was not something that we should consider negative. That this colonial idea that Africa was somehow inferior to, to Europe, you know, in, in every conceivable context, but particularly in cultural production, that this was something that you were just not supposed to talk about. Mm. So to me, naming this is, is something that's very important because when you, when you acknowledge where you come from, when you acknowledge what it means to sort of accept your, your past, this gives you an astonishing power. It's, it's a potentially dangerous power because it's not a power that those in power often want you to have. But I, I think it's very freeing 
to sort of step back and say, hey, this is where I, I came from. Now, of course, that that's a sort of very simple way to to talk about this too, because the the story doesn't end there. That's just sort of the beginning of the the conversation. We have these influences from the, these other cultural contexts, but those of us writing today, of course, have created our own unique cultural contexts as well. So to name that ultimately is to acknowledge not only where we came from, but something about where we are going in the future as well. And and that's a surprisingly difficult thing to do because it means stepping back and taking a really long look at the many influences that have led to us. So I I, I think there there's a lot of power in uh, to just to sort of re- return to Le Guin in being able to acknowledge the many names that we might have, you know, African, European, American, and and much more. And not necessarily needing to view any of those as somehow greater or lesser in terms of how they have made us into what we are today. Meaning that they're all part of the history that brought somebody like me, who is a multiracial person who would not exist were were it not for this very strange and terrifying set of cultural forces. You know, someone like me would not exist were it not for this. And as painful as that is, I have to acknowledge it in order to grant myself the ability to, to write about this. And this is something that I think writers like Brathwaite, writers like Ellison, and also writers like Baldwin as well, which I'd love to talk about a bit more, uh, understood. I, and and it's, it's a very complicated thing, but I think Le Guin was beginning to touch on this as well in, in her fascination with language and as, as you talked about her fascinations with what it means to uh, view view language as a form of technology even if this was something that she uh, pushed against a bit as well um, I'm glad that you brought up Brathwaite and oral traditions and vernacular because I want to come back to that and um, because it is part I think of Le Guin's interest when you say we should hold all of these things as equal influences um, rather than in a hierarchy. I, th- I think that's something that she does uh, engage with and confront. So I'm glad you brought that up and w- we're going to circle back, but I have one sort of omnibus of absurdly lengthy question um, because uh, as I started looking around, there were quite a few scholarly articles on Le Guin's naming in a field called onomastics, which is a word I didn't know, but onomastic means relating to the study of the history and origins of proper names. When you do a sort of onomastic investigation of the word omelas in her most well-known short story, for instance, the French words om elas, human alas, for one, that it's also Salem backwards, 
and then looking at the way Salem evokes the witch trials and thinking of the Le Guin story as being about a reversal of that. But there are academic articles too, like magic names, onomastics in the fantasies of Ursula Le Guin, which spends a lot of time looking at both the first and last names of the characters George Orr and William Haber in the novel Lathe of Heaven. I mainly wanted to mention another one in passing, not to talk about it specifically, but mainly because I found it amusing the amount of rigor that was applied to puzzle out Le Guin's system and then the earnest dismay that the scholar then had when it didn't seem to work out mathematically. Um, it's an article called The Dispossessed and How They Got to Be That Way, Ursula K. Le Guin's Onomastics. In the world of the dispossessed, in the new anarchist society, everyone gets their name assigned by a computer, the central registry computer, which randomly assigns names to the newborn, but subject to two rules. Only one living person can bear a given name at a time, and each name consists of a single five or six letter word. And Pravik, the newly invented language by the Anarchist Society on the Rebel Moon, can produce 8 million names with these constraints, according to this article. But to the distress of this researcher, there are 20 million people on Anaris. All of these investigations, I myself find truly fun and informative and sometimes illuminating, but only to a point. Um, as I don't think they're in the spirit of Le Guin's own pursuit around language. For one, for instance, her, her place names in Earthsea, she says, are connected to the baby names she had given her children when they were infants. That her connection to them is, is less intellectual and mathematical and preconceived. Uh, but perhaps more on point, I don't think she believes language can be reduced to information transfer or even fully to meaning um, perhaps like a dragon, which can be both true and unknowable. On the surface, it might seem in Earthsea that one's true name reflects one's true self in a straightforward one-to-one -one correspondence, but the notion of a true name is mysterious and elusive, I think, in the way she enacts it. And her most obvious counterpoint to the word magic system of Earthsea is, is the other story you foregrounded, She Unnames Them, where Eve removes the names from the animals that Adam has named. And it feels like most of the animals feel liberated from these names being removed when she removes them. Uh, this isn't necessarily counter to the Earthsea system, as it might simply suggest that Adam's naming wasn't reflecting a true listening to the essence of, of who these creatures are and what their true names are. But I think it also points back to Le Guin's comments about strangeness in relation to language. And this is a topic I find frequently in your work. I, th I think of your writing on whiteness in, in Moby Dick, the way Melville both reinscribes tropes of race and racism, but also explodes them the way whiteness is put forth as beautiful and good and pure and evoking a sense of authority, only to find, as he continues to unpack it, that it also evokes existential terror, funereal emptiness, and nameless horror. Um, 
I think of Le Guin's complicated relation to names when you explore how whiteness for Melville is both all the colors and the absence of color at the same time. It can't be reduced to a stable meaning. And I, I think in that spirit, you often write about strangeness and defamiliarization and the act of literary defamiliarization. And I guess I was hoping you could speak to that Anything and anything else that this... this uh, this essay of mine might have provoked for you around names and language and meaning, but, but in particular, literary defamiliarization too. I love that you brought this up because this is actually one of my favorite things to uh, think about. Um, I, I, I want to actually start with what you said a little bit before about the idea of the power of removing names uh, in She Unnames Them, that delightful, enigmatic short story that Le Guin did, which to this day, I think, remains one of my favorite of her pieces. You know, we've been talking so much about the power of giving something a name, of pointing something out as a form of naming. But in, in that story, the protagonist Eve encounters these creatures that Adam has named, you know, there's almost like there's this weight that Adam has put upon everything by sort of saying, this is what it is. This is this, this is that. And there's something kind of patriarchal in a very sort of blunt way about this. You know, Adam has claimed very clearly and oppressively, this is the way things must be. And, and what that means in the story is that a fish must be a fish, a dog must be a dog, and and so forth. And I've found that story so personally meaningful because Eve explores the significance of letting go, which in this case means losing a name, taking a name back. So when I read this story recently, uh it sort of coincided with uh, a relatively recent interest in uh, psychedelics for myself, uh, and specifically the idea of letting go of one's ego, uh, or as uh, psychonauts, uh, that is people who explore the regions of the mind through psychedelics, tended to put it ego death or ego dissolution. Uh, this is something I've experienced recently, and it's very interesting in the context of Le Guin's story. Uh, this is something I'm writing about in that essay collection that I hope to share with the world uh, very soon. Uh, there's an essay about Le Guin and naming in there as well. And it sort of focuses on this idea that to let go of a name is also to let go of your ego. It's to sort of embrace radical openness. And it's to embrace sort of forgetting who you were and just entering the radical flux of everything else. Because a name, in some ways, ties us down to a particular context. This is who I am. This is how others perceive me to be. When you remove this, 
you can sort of enter, as Eve puts it, the stream. You can sort of enter this sort of space in which you can merge with everything else. So from a sort of psychedelic perspective, Eve is radically letting go and becoming one of everything else. And I, I find that so fascinating because on the one hand, there's great power in having a name, but there's also a great power in being able to let it go, at least temporarily. As a transgender person, having a name is very powerful because the way that somebody refers to you, right, that changes so much about how you interact with that person, how you feel about whether or not that person respects you. Are they using a name that you don't feel comfortable with? Or are they using a name that you do feel comfortable with? In, in that sense, having a name is absolutely critical to your very existence, to your very sense of self-respect. But being able to let go of that is also kind of extraordinary when it comes to trying to understand what it means to be part of that wider stream of everything, as, as Eve seems to try to do. Um, and it's also a way to escape, you know, as Eve seems to realize, from the weight of patriarchy. So I think it's very interesting to sort of balance these two the power of naming, but also the power of being able to put that aside for a bit sometimes too. I love that. And I, and I'm, I'm curious, tell me if I'm making a, um, uh, connection that, that seems right or not to you. But when I think about literary defamiliarization, which you've also written essays on, um, and I think about removing a name like you're describing and connecting that to ego death and what will you discover when you remove that name? I also wonder about the opposite, maybe achieving a similar form of defamiliarization, um, repeating something so many times that it becomes strange. Like when you've explored white and the 500 ways that Melville will, 500 different contexts Melville will put white into until it suddenly becomes uncanny rather than something static and known and flat. Does this, does this make sense to you at all, um, the connection between the two? It absolutely does. I, I mean, to, just to back up for a little, uh, for somebody who might not be familiar with defamiliarization, you know, the, the basic idea here, uh, the person most associated with this idea, uh, Victor Shaklovsky put it in 1917, uh, in an essay called The Art of Technique. Uh, the, the basic idea was that using language, uh, using art, we can make something that seems familiar feel utterly alien, feel unfamiliar. And this all comes down to the way that we approach it. That if we can describe something as if we are seeing it for the first time, it takes on this kind of radical unfamiliarity and this is something that i think gabriel garcia marquez actually does uh quite wonderfully uh over and over in his fiction but perhaps no more 
uh, overtly than in the, the beginning of A Hundred Years of Solitude, where, you know, something as simple as a magnet takes on this almost magical power, right? So when it comes to defamiliarization in literature, uh, you know, you were talking about this idea of making the color white seem like something that is both familiar uh, and unfamiliar. Yeah, I, I think this is something that we, we see in, in the best of literature, where a writer is able to take something that we have sort of taken for granted and show it to us with the radical intensity of something we've never seen before. Moby Dick is a, a an easy example. And, and I know that Moby Dick is not usually described as an easy example of anything, <laughs> uh, given <laughs> the unease of, of reading Moby Dick. Yeah. But I think reading Moby Dick all the way through is rewarding, partly because of defamiliarization. You know, what does it mean to look at the color white and all of the possible meanings that it can have? Uh, in that essay, I wanted to talk about whiteness, you know, both in its racial context, you know, that there's a sort of very obvious uh, racialized meaning that that Melville might have been going for. At the same time, you know, there's this broader, almost cosmic meaning that sort of echoes uh, Edgar Allan Poe or even H.P. Lovecraft, in which whiteness becomes this all-pervading, terrifying concept. Potentially beautiful as a color in the sense that it contains all colors, but also utterly terrifying. And I love that, being able to be both simultaneously. You know, and I think Moby Dick was defamiliarizing what it means to be a novel, what it means to tell a story, even what it means to describe something as quote-unquote sane or mad. Uh, which, and, and I know that Le Guin has some very interesting thoughts about uh, madness as well, uh, which I'd love to uh, unpack at some point too. But yeah, I, I think defamiliarization, just, just to sort of sum it up here, is one of the most powerful things that I think we can try to do as, as writers, but also just as people more broadly. I think one of the deepest problems we actually have today is that too many people refuse to even try to do this or don't realize that this is a possibility. And what I mean by this is being able to stop, pause, and look at the world as if you're seeing it for the first time. Because there's something so astonishingly, almost dangerously powerful in being able to look at something with fresh eyes. What you take from that is ultimately up to you. But I think that if more people were willing to do this, 
it's one of the ways that we begin to bridge the very distressing polarization that we have politically and just more broadly in, in this country and many countries uh, today. I think defamiliarization is as powerful in literature as it is in life. And if more of us were willing to step back and try to do this, and not that it's easy to do, but if we were willing to try, I think it's a key to beginning to understand not only where we come from, but where perhaps we might be going. Yeah, and, and that's why it means so much to me. Well, it's interesting thinking about you know, one way, I mean, speaking someone's true name is, the, is this great way to potentially honor them. But then this other form of naming, maybe the Adam form of naming in that story we were just talking about being like a quick way to um, makes, make us feel like we know something and maybe the way we think we know it to reduce it and potentially to have dominion over it. Um, and I know this notion of defamiliarization and these, this question of names um, connects with a lot of your writing about trans identity, but you, you've also written about it in relation to mixed race identity, for instance, how you are seen differently and thus subsequently named differently here in the U S versus where you grew up in Dominica. Yes. Um, and, and if you want to speak to that, I would love to hear about that. And I'd also just would love to spend a moment with your piece on race and gender and the wizard of earthsea. You, you write about your experience of race in that book, but you also allude to what you call fantasies, longstanding issues with race. And I kind of wanted to, to, um, pause there and, and talk about fantasy and race and, and wizard of earthsea and race and, and perhaps also about you moving between spaces and, and then being seen and named um, differently because of those spaces? Only the easy question. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, uh, this, no, this is so important to talk about, I think, in the context of naming, right? Because something that I've explored a lot in my writing is, uh, as you put it, the way that I am sort of perceived and then in turn defined by others, sometimes very differently, depending on the context that I'm in. And that's partly because I am multiracial and the features that I have physically, you know, genuinely can be interpreted in a wide number of ways. Uh, this was a sort of running joke growing up that people would essentially assume that I was whatever they wanted me to be. Um, and that has played out over the course of my life. Uh, but but more seriously, I, I think it's very interesting in an American context in particular, because the way that people tend to read me racially the way that people tend to name me racially at a glance, I think reflects on a larger tendency in American history to want to very firmly categorize people based on race and by extension, separate people based on race. So 
you must be this, you must be that, because don't you dare be both. The so-called sin of miscegenation that has haunted America for, for centuries still lives on. It still haunts the land. And I, I think we see that in this sort of obsession to categorize people very rigidly as one thing or another. And for somebody who isn't one thing or another, like me, somebody who's mixed, but doesn't usually have a category to choose on a form that says mixed, that's usually not there inexplicably. Um, you know, it, it, it becomes very difficult because on, on those forms that I must fill out, uh, usually the best choice I have is other, where it's sort of funny, I quite literally become the other yeah. on, on one of these forms. But I, I bring all of this up just because I, I think it's sort of telling that the idea of complexity and uncertainty are not always privileged or even accepted in in this American context. And and I, I just find that so frustrating. It's it's also true, of course, in a transgender framework, because whether or not you are accepted as the gender that you uh, present as, you know, is, is always a fraught uh, thing. You know, you're constantly trying to make the world see what you would like them to see, but that means that you are in some sense beholden to the perceptions of others. And, and that's only, of course, talking about somebody like me who self-defines wholly as, uh, as one thing or another. For people who are non-binary, for people who uh, deliberately want to uh, confound expectations of gender, for people who just want to be themselves, in other words, in a more complex understanding of gender, you know, you, you see this even more clearly, where people just seem very confused at best and very upset at worst that you're not fitting into a simple box. Well, well thinking of that simple box, talk to us about what you consider to be the longstanding issues with the fantasy genre when it comes to race. You know, I've been thinking about this over the last few years, uh, probably most in the context of the issues with the, the so-called, uh, was it the, the, the sad puppies and the, the mm-hmm. rabbit puppies, which to me is a great jumping off point to talking about expectations of race in a fantasy context and why, to me, those expectations are, on the one hand, very silly, and on the other hand, I think very revealing about the people who have those expectations. So what do I mean? The, the sort of stereotype about high fantasy in particular, right? And, and this is nothing new, of course, but it's that 
we are going to get this this uh, sort of medieval-esque world, uh, specifically a European medieval-esque world, in which characters will, by default, be white. And, and I find this quite remarkable because, you know, fantasy, by definition, doesn't have to reproduce the aspects of the world that we actually live in. It, it quite literally doesn't have to. So the fact that you would assume that a character should be white and the fact that you're assuming something, you know, th that is also a, a sort of very problematic default assumption in, in, in so much of, of literature uh, that is not fantasy, I, I think is just very telling. Even today with so much discourse about the fact that we shouldn't have whiteness as a default, that we shouldn't have maleness as a default, that we shouldn't have cisgenderness as a default. In other words, that there's no reason to make a default assumption about what a character looks like, what a character sounds like. There's no reason to have any of this. And yet, in, in fantasy of all places, this assumption persists to such a degree that when an author reveals that actually this character is not white, uh, there are legions of fans who revolt and, and, and say, how dare you? And, and I think Earthsea is a great example of this historically because, as, as we know, the protagonist of that story is not white. And, and yet... Uh, if I'm remembering correctly, there were many fans who I believe were a little bit dismayed that that certain uh, book covers uh, for The Wizard of Earthsea depicted Gad as a non-white being. And, and, and I believe there were also covers that tried to whitewash Gad uh, as well. And and I and I think that's just so so telling, because Le, Le Guin was very clearly trying to go against these assumptions about who is telling a story, who is at the center of a story, and and yet decades later we're still having these discussions about who should be telling a story, who should be at the center of it. And we're still having people react in just, uh, to me, very childish rage at not not seeing themselves, themselves in this case being uh, predominantly white male cisgender readers, uh, as, as being at the center of the universe. And again, I just find that so absurd, considering that in fantasy, and also to, to some degree uh, in, in sci-fi and specfic, there's usually no need to have those assumptions in the first place. And yet we do. So what does that say about us? Well, I want to, I want to um, extend this notion of yours that you're bringing up, but before you do what I imagined you were going to say about fantasy, and I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on it. Something that I find a little troubling is the way different peoples will have essentialized characteristics. Um, 
So yes. even even if, yes. for instance, say like in Lord of the Rings, if we just look at the fellowship, the various iterations of, of whiteness in Europe, they all have characteristics that are essential to who they are as peoples. But then on top of it, the people who we don't have to care about, say like the orcs, um, the sort of undifferentiated horde, um, they're coming from the south and from the east, and they ride oliphants and... Um, Nothing about the book makes you have to be troubled that they might have merit for their cause. Like to eradicate them is is ultimately an un, a relatively uncomplicated thing. That's something that I feel like plays out some sort of weird construction of race to me that's common in these medieval um, racial fantasies. Yeah, I think that it's again just very telling that there's this obsession to not only make assumptions about who must be telling a story but also about the very sort of ontological makeup of of the entire world so we we see this a little bit more extremely i think in fantasy where as you were saying uh, there, there can be a, a tendency to depict groups of people as quote-unquote races that all share sort of very explicit defining characteristics. And in, in the more sort of overt examples of this, sometimes those characteristics correspond to human societies, but more specifically sort of colonialist European understandings of those societies. Uh, I think Orientalism is one of the more sort of common tropes in in certain fantasy texts uh, where you have the sort of distant other who will will often, by the way, also have names that are meant to evoke this sort of very vague Orientalism, even the language used, which is not supposed to be an earthly language, is somehow reproducing aspects of uh, a sort of very simplistic Mandarin or a very simplistic Japanese or a very simplistic Korean and, and lots of other things like this that are meant to signal to readers, you know, hey, this is a fantasy race, but hey, this is also those people over there. And it, and by extension, you know, isn't that signaling to readers who might be from those countries, this book isn't quite for you. This book is meant to look at you as opposed to talking to you or talking with you. So yeah, I, I think this sort of tendency to want to d- divide others into these very sort of rigid sort of racialized tropes uh, you know echoes sort of centuries of colonial assumptions about different groups of people uh, you know old sort of cultural anthropologies where people would be defined very rigidly based on where they were from the shapes of their foreheads, all kinds of absurdities that were nonetheless ascribed enormous 
sort of existential significance in terms of understanding who somebody was, what they were capable of, what they believed, what they valued. Yeah, I, I think it's very easy to fall back on these tropes in, in certain types of writing. But I think it's also telling that if you did fall back on those tropes in a piece of pure realism, readers would probably be a little quicker to point out how dangerous this is. Yeah. But in certain uh, examples of fantasy, sometimes this gets more of a pass, even though the parallels are actually very similar to those old, complicated, problematic views of, of race and ethnicity and otherness that, that we see in a sort of colonial context uh, in, in, in so much of, of the past. Uh, so I, yeah, I think it's very interesting that this lives on in fantasy, to, to, so to speak, a little bit more than anywhere else. I want to speak to two things about race in Earthsea and also more generally in Le Guin's work and hear your thoughts on them before we spend a bulk of the rest of the time on, on questions of gender. The first is more specifically related to naming. I remember reading this great review of Toni Morrison's only short story in the New York Times, a story where she didn't name which of the two girls were black and which was white. Yes. Um, though you knew you knew that one was one and one was the other. So and she so she sort of makes the reader into the experiment to see what signifiers we as readers were going to constellate and then name one of the girls a certain race and one the other. And the reviewer, Honore Fanon Jeffers, says it was near revolutionary at the time. 1983 to put forth white as a race whether it was revolutionary it was it was definitely i think rare and i think you could point towards the diversity as an example of making whiteness into a race and also making the reader into the subject of an experiment not just because get is not white but because when the main people in the story are introduced their skin color is not described at first. So presumably, a lot of readers probably slot them into the category of white as the default. But when we learn of the invaders, who are yellow-haired and white, and named as such, we realize that the unnamed default of this world is black and brown. Only when the white people are named do we realize that the default is counter to literary convention. And only then is the default described. That seems like a rare move to me, not only a half century ago, but perhaps today. And I, I wondered if you have you had any thoughts on, on that? I, I mean, I think this emphasizes just how quietly revolutionary uh, A Wizard of Earthsea was. Um, even though you know, there are sort of superficial aspects of this novel that, that, that to me at least feel a bit more conventional, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, it's both conventional and subversive at the same time. Yeah, I and think I, so too. I, I, I kind of love that. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's interesting that we have had many writers and thinkers and academics talk about, you know, the tendency to resort to these defaults, the, the, the tendency to sort of assume that that whiteness is the default that you don't even need to point out. And, and yet, I, I think it's very clear that that remains the, the, the default in so much writing about race, uh, even ironically in articles that are about this very uh, problem, right? Mm. I, I, I find it so fascinating that you can read a piece of writing about why we need to stop centering whiteness, and yet the only people whose race is pointed out in those articles are, are the people who are not white, which means that perhaps subconsciously you're reproducing the assumption that if somebody is white, I don't need to say it because you just assumed it. And it's very difficult to disembarrass yourself, to, to unmanacle yourself from this assumption. Even for me, I, you know, I've thought about this for many years now, and I still sometimes find myself making that exact move without meaning to, mm -hmm. because it's so thoroughly embedded into our assumptions about how we should describe things, about who the other is, about who the other, I think more importantly, is not. Uh, that something like Earthsea uh, still remains subversive for exactly the reasons you said, but also Toni Morrison's story remains radical because as many students have, have realized when being taught this story, it's utterly impossible to know which of the, the characters is which. And, and I think that perhaps for American students, most of all, there seems to be, to go back to what I was saying before, you know, this sort of desire to categorize one person as as one thing and one person as another uh, and and I think Toni Morrison's story is great in the sense that it very much puts that desire onto center stage and, and it says well if if you can't do it I'm just gonna let you be frustrated and think about what you were trying to do and I think that's great because Toni Morrison spends so much of her other writing you know, very much explicitly talking about uh, what it means to be a Black woman in an overwhelmingly uh, white-centered world, even down to the level of the, the ways that we use the words Black and white to signify darkness or light, evil or good. The, the, these sort of so-called classical binaries that don't inherently have to have a racial context. They could refer to the night and the sun, but they also very clearly do have racial significance, particularly, again, when you look at the, the way that 
that these words were used in a in a colonial context where people with dark skin were assumed to be somehow cursed or assumed to be somehow lesser uh, because of all of the assumptions connected to this idea of darkness. Yeah. There's just so many ways that we reproduce this binary and and, and certainly very much in fantasy uh, without always connecting race directly to the, the fact that we are doing this. So the the fact that we're still talking so much about darkness and light, black magic versus white magic, you know, like, like these sorts of divisions without racializing them, even though people subconsciously will often think of something racial when, when hearing these terms used in this way, you know, I, I think that that's something it's going to take a, a a lot of effort to undo let's let's spend another moment with this um the default for many of Le Guin's books and stories turns out to be non-white the protagonists are usually black and brown um I wanted to bring this up in relationship to an essay by a recent guest on between the covers Elaine Castillo the essay called the limits of white fantasy where she looks at the sense of betrayal readers of white fantasy feel when the people writing it don't end up really holding the views of justice and equality and solidarity that the worlds they've created seem to nod toward. You yourself write about this around your love of Harry Potter and then J.K. Rowling's uh, transphobia out in the world. Castillo isn't a Potterhead, but she loves the X-Men, where even though the characters in that world were written by white people and were usually white, she and her friends saw their own struggles in these characters who didn't look like them, nevertheless. And she asks, how can a writer who wrote so convincingly about being a misfit be so indifferent to the plight of misfits in front of her. How could Marvel, home of X-Men, that supposed bastion of civil rights metaphors, be at the crux of such right-wing, misogynist, racist, homophobic fervor as Comicsgate, the reactionary harassment campaigns waged by fandoms against perceived quote-unquote social justice warriors feminists, anti-racists, queer artists, and readers out to ruin their precious comics. How could those fans miss the irony of attacking minorities while at the same time defending classic allegories of oppression devoted to narratives of resistance and community building? And She goes on to suggest that these worlds were really only nominally interested in oppression and difference that they were more doing a shallow cosplay-like understanding of oppression. For instance, how Handmaid's Tale borrows freely from black histories of oppression and intergenerational trauma, only to have them dramatized as if happening to white people. I don't want to overstate the importance of Le Guin's stories in this realm. She herself was criticized uh, for not exploring embodied racism within her worlds. She certainly wasn't exploring race on the level of 
Butler or Delaney or others, and also the discourse around who can tell what story and around appropriation has changed in the half century since she wrote these touchstone books. And perhaps her choices wouldn't fly now. But so many of these stories do center black and brown protagonists as agents of change. Her future Earths are not white people as victims in ways that in the real world, people of color are victims of white people. She is in fact imagining people of color thriving in the future of problem solving into the future. However imperfectly this was done, it did seem to allow at least a foothold for people to imagine themselves into her stories and to not feel betrayed in the, in the way that Castillo is, is um, unpacking. I guess I wondered if you had any thoughts about this and, and if you wanted to speak at all to how you've sorted out your own life-saving experiences with Harry Potter versus the ways the author has spoken out in the world the harmful ways the author has spoken out in the world. Yes, I <laughs> have a lot of thoughts about uh, Harry Potter. Uh, but but be, before I go there, I mean, I, I think your point about the, the sort of unexpected failure of somebody talking so eloquently about what it means to be a misfit or what it means to be rejected or I mean for lack of a better word marginalized then turning around and criticizing others who say you're marginalizing me actually uh, or there's a problem here I think that this ultimately comes down to uh, a failure of empathy on the one hand and also a, a failure to confront those defaults that we've been talking about before. The failure of empathy to me is actually, I think, a little more interesting because so many of these stories, and and this includes Harry Potter, of course, involve trying to ask readers to put themselves into the shoes of somebody who has been bullied, who has been otherized, who has been pushed away and said you're not as good as us it's it's these are very classic stories so often of tribalism of marginalization and it's not surprising that readers who are marginalized themselves would be attracted to the protagonists of these stories right so i i think it's ironic then that the writers themselves have often failed to put their own feet into the shoes of so many of those readers because the the failure of of empathy here to me reflects that the writer was thinking of their own experiences or a sort of very circumscribed version of what it might mean to be marginalized. In other words, being marginalized could only look like this. And it's almost like a Venn diagram that has a single circle and, and, and nothing else. Nothing is intersecting. So it makes sense, doesn't it, that intersectionality, which requires that the circles intersect, 
is the very thing that so many of these writers seem to be scared of. This, this idea that if we look at broader ways, bigger ways, more human ways of what it means to be marginalized, we might realize that some of these stories are either lacking in some way or that there are uh, tremendous benefits to having everybody be able to tell their own stories. Mm-hmm. So the fact that there is any pushback to this, which there absolutely should not be, to me is a failure to put yourself into the shoes of another, despite the fact that so many of these stories implicitly ask, ask their readers to do the same. I, I know that the idea of empathy has received a lot of flack in the last few years. I don't really care about that. I mean, I think empathy is deeply important to me. Sometimes I self-describe as an empath uh, in the sense that it, it's it's hard for me not to want to put myself into the shoes of another. It's actively hard not to, for me to try to understand what somebody else is feeling. And it doesn't matter if that's somebody who's drastically different from me. It doesn't mean that I excuse what somebody else says if it's something that I consider hurtful. But it means I would like to understand them, whether that's as another human or in a piece of sci-fi as another uh, alien species or in a piece of fantasy as somebody or something or someone utterly unlike myself. I love encountering the other in this space in which we are trying to understand each other. And to me, science fiction and fantasy are uniquely suited to offering readers exactly that. And yet the fact that this so often does not happen is just one of the bigger tragedies to me that I uh, keep encountering. I, I would not expect to keep encountering this and and yet it, it keeps happening so so i'd like to spend quite a bit of time with us talking about the way the power of naming for Le Guin intersects with gender as you do in your own writing both about her and more broadly but i want to first start at the level of the sentence and the level of grammar and and then work our way out because the first time Le Guin and i talked for the show was about the revised, expanded version of her craft book, Steering the Craft. And that book is stuck with me in a number of ways. For one, much like the way she troubles and weirds names and naming, her craft book very generatively transgresses categories, genres, and conventions. For instance, genre fiction and so-called literary fiction are talked about fluidly next to each other on equal terms. So she is just as likely to bring up Tolkien as Virginia Woolf or Dickens as she presents examples of writing techniques. But beyond that, she also does not entirely preference written texts versus oral storytelling. She places oral storytelling alongside both genre fiction and literary fiction so that an indigenous oral tale is put forth alongside say, Zora Neale Hurston or Tolstoy, which is alongside a sci-fi writer like Atwood. Um, I want to return later to talk about orality and to pick up the threads that you were mentioning around Brathwaite. 
in relationship to some of these questions. But the thing that struck me most about this book and our discussion of it was how the things she was concerned about on the macro level, questions of class and capital, of gender, race, social justice, and any number of other things, they seem to begin on the level of grammar for her, that the choices we make around these things as writers regarding whether we want to uphold the status quo or imagine and otherwise might even begin here on this level, on the sentence level. So I'm going to play about a five-minute back and forth between us as a way to sort of set the stage for our discussion. So here's uh, Ursula and I from the first time we met. Well, every so often in Steering the Craft, you have an opinion piece. And one of my favorites is about morality and grammar. And you talk about how morality and language are linked, but how morality and correctness are not the same thing. And we often confuse morality and correctness in the realm of, of grammar. Can you talk a little bit about, about that? Yeah. Well, that's where what somebody else gave me this phrase for for the grammar bullies. Um, they tend to write in, you read them in places like the New York Times and so on, and they tell you what is correct. You must never use hopefully, like hopefully we'll be going there on Tuesday. That's incorrect and wrong, and you are an, actually basically a sort of an ignorant pig if you say it. Well, this is this judgmentalism. And what the game that's being played there is, is a game of social class. I'm sorry. Uh, it has nothing to do with the, with the morality of writing and speaking and thinking clearly, which well, Orwell, for instance, talked about so well. It's just affirming I'm from a higher class than you are. And the trouble is that people who aren't taught grammar and such very well in school fall for these statements from these pundits delivered with vast authority from above, you know. And so I'm kind of fighting that. It's, you know, it's a, a, a very interesting case in point is using they uh, for singular and how this is wrong, 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 and, and offends the, the grammar bullies enormously. Well, the, it was a rule that was invented basically in the 18th century. It didn't exist in English before. Shakespeare used they instead of he or she. We all have always done it in speaking, in colloquial English. And it, it took the women's movement to sort of bring it back into written English. But it's important. See, there, there's a, a kind of crossroads between the correctness bullying and the uh, the moral use of language. If if he includes she, but she doesn't include he, you're a big statements being made. Well, we got they. Why not use it? <laughs> well, this this difference between grammatical correctness and the way language engages moral questions is interesting. It it raises um, it reminds me of this quote that you've said: um, "We can't restructure society without restructuring the English language." So essentially, the the battle is at the sentence level as much as it is in the world. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And that, again, I read George Orwell's 
great essay. I can't remember what it's called, though, the one about about writing English clearly being a political matter. I read that as a freshman in college, and it went real deep into me. So often I'm simply rephrasing Orwell. And it's reflected in your in your work as well. Like I think of The Dispossessed, which is the the novel about an anarchist utopia, and there's no property, but there's also no possessive pronouns. So there, there's a way in which the world and the language of the world are reflecting back in a in a sort of unison. They, in the novel, the the, the founders of this anarchist society made up a new language because they realized that using the old one was you you couldn't have this society and that language. So they obviously they, they based the, the new language on the old one, but they they changed it enormously, which is simply a, a kind of an illustration of what what Orwell was saying, I think. So lots of these rules that are really rules of correctness, which sort of reflect back maybe some regressive tendencies in society, um, you call fake rules. And so in a, as on the one hand, Steering the Craft really um, talks about the the importance of really engaging with our tools, like using punctuation, understanding its power and understanding grammar, but also not falling for these fake rules. And, and you mentioned one around the generic pronoun he for both men mm. and women. Yeah. And the way that is an example of erasing women at the sentence level. Um, and I also remember reading that if you could rewrite Left Hand of Darkness, your your book that was way ahead of its time about gender fluidity, you would make some different changes on the sentence level. Is that true? Would you would you make some changes around the use of pronouns? And obviously, it's unsatisfactory to call these genderless people he all the way through the book, as I do, uh, unless one of them goes into camera and has gender, and then it becomes genuinely he or she. You cannot use they that way. That that would be totally confusing. Uh, I and made up pronouns drive me mad. When the book soon after the book was written, particularly in the eighties, there were several books written with made up pronouns, and I just can't I can't do that to English. But what do you do? I've tried this and that. I rewrote a short story and a chapter of Left Hand of Darkness, simply making everybody she instead of he, and it's very interesting to read it after having read the the, the he version, you know. But it's not right either because they aren't she. They, they're they, <laughs> you know, but, but we, and we can't do it. So I just envy I, the, uh, the Finnish. And I think that the Japanese, at least in some respects can speak genderlessly. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just envious. So Gabby, I have, I have some questions, but, um, before I ask any, did, did, did this bring up anything for you you wanted to say? Actually, gets me a little bit quicker to uh, talking about pronouns in Left Hand of Darkness, right? I, I, yeah. Because I think that that's such a fascinating aspect of this book. And and I think to, to, to step back just a little bit, hearing Le Guin just now talk about the the choices that, that she made in that novel, uh, and, and for any reader who's not familiar, uh, essentially... This uh, alien species, the the uh, Gifenians, are universally referred to in the novel with the pronoun he when they are not in Kemmer, uh, which is the uh, 
periodic state in which they develop bodily sexual characteristics and are referred to as he or, 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 or she uh, in, in a more sort of sexually defined context. Uh, okay, to get it out of the way, um, yeah, I, I found it so interesting uh, rereading this novel uh, more recently because when I first read this book, you know, to go back to what we were talking about at the very start of the podcast, uh, I, I don't think it actually really resonated with me at all that they were referred to as he universally. It just sort of passed over me, which I think is unsurprising considering what we've been talking about with defaults. Mm-hmm. You know, he is also so often a, a default. I find myself, you know, sometimes... Uh, joking with my wife when we are out walking and we see a very adorable dog, for instance, and one of us will say, oh, he's wearing doggy boots. Mm-hmm. And th- there's no reason to gender this dog in this way. And yet, and yet. So what I find so interesting about what Le Guin was just saying is the the assumption that at the time the book was written, he was being used within the novel essentially as an attempt at a universal pronoun, albeit uh, an unsatisfactory attempt for for Ligwin. Um, and I, I love that she nods, she, she makes a nod to her attempts to uh, use she in later stories about uh, that this world and the fact that this also kind of feels a little bit off because the Kefenians are not actually technically either uh, when when it comes to using one of these pronouns as universal. I'm a little bit confused that she thought that they would be unsatisfactory. Um, uh, and, and I would love to unpack that a little bit more. But... Yeah, I, 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 I think it's also worth mentioning uh, quickly that this is a novel that we so often get through a very specific perspective, and that's the, the very gender-focused perspective of the main uh, human character, uh, Genli Ai, who has very sort of overt kind of traditionalistic assumptions about gender and actually often seems a bit misogynistic you know mm-hmm. or, or or if not misogynistic uh, at very least a little bit nervous being around uh what he understands as femininity or gender indeterminacy again uh, I seems to have a strong desire to separate who he encounters into rigid gender categories. And when he's unable to do this, he, you know, occasionally lashes out a little bit in the narration, saying that, you know, oh, this particular Gefenian was was a little bit off-putting because of the way that their their hips uh, waggled or, or something <laughs> <laughs> sort of you know nodding to this idea that uh femininity 
uh, as as he understands it in this context, is somehow negative, right? Yeah, I mean, w- we sort of unpack this a little bit, Becky Chambers and I, in the first conversation that that the entryway, in contrast to the later stories that she writes from the same world, is of this heteronormative, misogynistic character. But yes. also, but we should also add that that character, the narrator, is is perceived by the people as being kind of perverted. Um, because I mean, literally, I mean, I think perverted because of the fact that he's got a static expressed gender at all times. So the default in this world is also in, in that regard, perhaps like earthy, a non-normative default, even though we're getting all of the like, um, biases and judgments against that default by this visitor. I think this is what Le Guin excels at though, right? You know, the, the the fact that we have this sort of terrestrial perspective on the one hand, which like all too many humans tends to want to have a very clear sense of who somebody is in terms of gender and also has patriarchal assumptions. And then on the other hand, the really wonderful thing, we also get to not just see, but experience what it's like to inhabit uh, the Gefenian's perspective of gender. It, it doesn't mean that one perspective is, you know, quote unquote, better or, or worse than, than the other. It's just that these perspectives are culturally determined differences. Right. But being able to feel them, not just to be told this is what they think, but to actually inhabit uh, their perspectives, I think, is so powerful. And I I think that's one of the reasons that this novel still speaks to me so much, even many decades, or not many decades, but like a decade and a half after I I first read this. Le Le Guin, as we've already touched upon, deals with naming in a variety of ways. With Ged and Ursi, it has to do with identity, but also magic. In The Dispossessed, it has to do with collectivity and breaking down a sense of ownership and property. But I think the way she does the most experiments around names, perhaps in the spirit of her defense of the singular they, it is around gender. But before we talk about some of these things in Le Guin's work a little more, and yours, I did want to preface anything that we did say by first talking about Le Guin's work in relationship to transness or, and or trans literature. A- as part of the 2016 James Tiptree Symposium celebration of Le Guin's life and work, which Le Guin herself attended part of, part of that included three scholarly engagements by trans writers with the left hand of darkness one of them by the artist Tuesday Smiley has been a part of the Crafting with Ursula series since the first episode with Becky Chambers. We, we looked at how Tuesday frames Le Guin's radical imagination as being less about or less specifically tied to the works themselves and more about her willingness to do what Tuesday called a public auto-critique, to listen to her readers when they are critical in ways she recognizes as having merit, to feel beholden to community, to metabolize that feedback in her own way, 
reconsider herself, re-enter her worlds and expand and complicate them. And then to often write about her process within her nonfiction, such as her essay, Is Gender Necessary?, which she later felt uncomfortable with, that she, she felt she wrote maybe defensively. But instead of rewriting it or entirely disowning it, her revision sort of annotates the original down the margins. So she leaves an archival record of that process and her own growth. Tuesday called this Le Guin's use of imagination as a radical practice. Um, and I think we can see the spirit of that, that three writers who are all critiquing as much as extolling Left Hand of Darkness are part of a celebration of Le Guin's life while she's still alive and she's even attending in, in part. Um, that critique was, was part of the celebration. Um, and I wanted to speak just briefly to one of these presentations by Misha uh, Cardenas called Imagining a Trans World, which in part worried about the effect it would have of putting forth Left Hand of Darkness as a trans text for many reasons, not the least of which was its potential to divert away from trans literary and cultural production by trans writers who are writing about their embodied experience. As Cardenas says, Le Guin wasn't aiming to write about transness. She didn't research trans identity or know trans people when she wrote the book and that she was doing a thought experiment by her own account. And Misha suggests that the book might be better thought of alongside Judith Butler's Gender Trouble or Donna Haraway's The Cyborg Manifesto, and that the gender fluidity in Left Hand of Darkness might be better thought of as being connected to the notion of being gender queer versus being trans. But I know you yourself have written about this question of what is trans literature, and I love the spirit in which you write about it, not coming to a fixed conclusion, but sort of looking into and showing a wide range of differing and contradicting opinions. Is a book with a trans protagonist written by a cis person a trans book? Is a book by a trans writer that doesn't deal with transness or even gender at all, is that trans literature? and so on. I bring this up less for us to talk about the left hand of darkness, even though I think Misha brings up good points, which I wanted to preface our discussion of Le Guin and gender with, but more to hear your own thoughts on where you land on this question, let's say, of what book should or shouldn't qualify for an award in trans literature, especially since you yourself have been a judge for the Lambda Literary Awards in trans literature. It's a fantastic question. And it's it's not a question that I, I think people will necessarily ever have a sort of definitive answer that every writer, every judge, every critic uh, agrees on. But I will say that for me, when I think of these questions, I, I'm I'm often trying to look at them from a distance, meaning if I were, <laughs> let's say, an, an alien coming down to this planet and trying to see what somebody else was, was doing, how would I understand 
the ways to categorize things like this. In other words, looking at it from the from from an outsider's perspective, even though in this case I'm an insider, what would make the most sense to me? So in that essay that you you referenced, you know, I was sort of exploring what it means to engage with trans literature, both by trans writers who are explicitly writing about trans identity, but also by uh, cisgender writers who were also writing about what we might today call trans identity if those books did not explicitly use that terminology, uh, which many of them did not, given that that terminology either was not common or did not exist uh, in this form at that time. So I think essentially anything that engages with issues of transing gender, in other words, crossing gender in some ways, or problematizing gender, making gender more complicated. I think anything that engages with this in a very broad sense can be thought of as being within the orbit of trans literature because trans literature is a complicated thing. Like whenever we talk about literature that explores questions of what it means to exist in a sort of complicated gender space, it's very difficult to not talk about certain texts, and this absolutely includes the left hand of darkness, that have dealt with this in various ways. Uh, you could argue that these texts are sort of peripheral, and that the most overt examples of trans literature are sort of <laughs> the, the ones that are very explicitly written by trans writers about uh, trans identity. But I, I don't think we can really have this discussion honestly unless we also bring in texts that have done this in, in different ways as, as well. So I think it's all related. Uh, it's all part of the constellation. Uh, and, 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 and that's why for me, talking about trans literature and really any literature uh, includes texts that might not be found in in the if there were if there were a trans literature section of a bookstore uh, wouldn't that be great uh, but if, if there were uh, you know these texts might not always be there but they are relevant to the discussion mm-hmm. I mean ultimately I have become less of a fan of sort of rigidly defining books in the first place I I, I think it's kind of unimportant to some degree what label we use and it's more important what the book uh, is doing. But yeah, I, I think trans literature really like any label is far more complicated than its most literal definition. So although I can be a fan of Occam's razor, this is a case where I am very much on the opposite side of Occam's razor. Huh. Well, when I, when I think of Le Guin's exchange with me about the use of the singular they, the erasure of she into he, but also simply the erasure of they in its own right. I, I think she compellingly puts forth that the work to envision a different future begins here, um, or in contrast, the work to prevent a different future from happening also happens here. I think of Adrienne Marie Brown when she was on Crafting with Ursula, talking about how if we don't do the hard work of imagination ourselves, we will be imagined by others and be living within that resulting world. 
that it is an imagination battle. And I think it's one that Le Guin brings down into the level of words and names. And I, I think of Pamela Paul, who was the editor of the New York Times book review for a decade up until recently, and is now writing a lot of reactionary, transphobic op-eds for the New York Times, like her recent op-ed called The Far Right and the Far Left Agree on One Thing, Women Don't Count, where she, in her attempt to show that both the far right and the far left agree on women not counting, she puts on the same level the right's increasingly successful efforts to strip women of fundamental human rights, uh, culminating in the overturning of Roe. She puts this on the same level of concern in her opening framing of the piece as Planned Parenthood and the ACLU using more gender-inclusive language that includes people, let's say, who menstruate or need an abortion who aren't cis women as if not using the word woman as a reference only to cis women suggests these organizations have stopped making efforts on behalf of cis women, even as their missions continue on their behalf in reality. Paul says, this isn't just a semantic issue, it's also a question of moral harm. And I think Le Guin would agree that the semantic issue isn't one that should have the word just before it, just a semantic issue, that harm can begin here, even if Le Guin's relation to language and semantics seems to be the opposite of Paul's. I guess I was hoping you might speak to your piece where you yourself put in parallel and interbraid the CDC's attempts under Trump to ban seven words, including the word transgender, with your fraught relationship with your mother who who couldn't say the word, the quote-unquote T-word either, where you say by simplifying her language, she was simplifying you, erasing a part of you. I appreciate you uh, bringing this up because I think that it's so important to step back and reflect on the ways that our linguistic choices and perhaps more specifically, what we are willing to do with our language helps to create a different world. Language is a form of world-making. The, the language that we use circumscribes the world that we are seeing or imagining before us. So if we're unwilling to use certain terminology, if we feel threatened by a certain terminology, then that means that the circumscription of the world that we are imagining is not necessarily the same. And that makes me think a little bit, uh, as a very quick tangent, of the famous 1965 debate that James Baldwin had with William F. Buckley about whether or not the American dream was at the expense of the American Negro. That, that, that was the uh, motion of, of the uh, debate. And I, I bring this up because Baldwin noted, and this is something I've always uh, loved, but something that I also think is 
a very painful truth that he and and Buckley, uh, Buckley being at the time uh, one of the fathers of what we would now consider modern American conservatism, uh, he claimed that Buckley had a different system of reality, that the way he was speaking reflected an entirely different set of assumptions about the way that the world works. And I think it's very easy to forget the sheer difference in the assumptions that, that we have and how those are reflected in the words that we do or do not choose to use. So when somebody says that they are being erased because a word is not being used, well, I mean, to some degree, I can understand where that comes from. Like, let's, let's start with the CDC's example, right? In 2017, there was a very infamous memo circulated where the Trump administration was essentially directing the CDC to stop using a number of words, which included fetus, who, who can guess why that was, or <laughs> words like transgender uh, and a number of others. So why would a government administration try to do this? Well, if you don't use the words, maybe the people who embody those words stop existing in people's minds. If you don't use language to circumscribe somebody, if you don't use language to have them fit within your circle of, of existence, then they're not there. They're on a different Venn diagram impossibly far away from you. And, and I, I find it very interesting to compare this to the Pamela Paul example, because this is a case of language not actually being removed so much as added to. So when we talk about, say, pregnant people, which is usually the flagship phrase that uh, critics like Paul turn to as an example of uh, the, the most horrific tendencies of the, of the far left and, and everything else. Well, I, I think it's so interesting because so many of, of the critics who use terms like pregnant people will still overwhelmingly talk about women when they are talking about pregnancies or the overturning of Roe v. Wade or any of the issues that they are referring to when they talk about pregnancy. And yet, just the brief references, sometimes as little as one or two references in an article that overwhelmingly talks about women explicitly, just the fact that one or two references might not only be about women is threatening. How, how dare you add somebody else? Because your language now presupposes that somebody else could be included. And there, there, there's a great threat, isn't there, to adding somebody to that circle of existence that you're in if you didn't expect them to be there. But honestly, to have a truer form of human language, we need to have a bigger form of human language. I disagree with Le Guin a little bit about the idea of so-called made-up pronouns because, I mean, first of all, 
all of language is made up. There's no such thing as anything that's not made up. Uh, this is one of the sillier things I I hear from uh, critics about uh, just just neo neologisms in general. This idea that oh, if it's made up, it's therefore bad. But every word was made up at some point, right. and they is a great example of this because it's a word that almost everybody uses casually, and yet when it's presented as a non-binary or gender-neutral uh, uh, term, it's presented as if this is a quote-unquote made-up definition of the term, despite the fact that it's used uh, in colloquial usage all the time. Yeah. And I, I just find this extraordinary. Well, let's let's stay with this, with the sentence and this the battlefield being at the sentence level too around meaning and uh, what future we want to envision. Because beyond the segment I played of Le Guin talking about the, the singular they and how it's, as you've just mentioned again, the, has uh, forever been in common usage in spoken English and the way she uses oral, oral storytelling in her craft book, Orality is also super important to her in many ways. And I think when she was talking in that clip that I played about grammar bullies, I think that's one area where I think it comes into play for her too. We we talk about this in my translation conversation with Maria Devana Headley about how Le Guin in her essay, Text, Silence, Performance, talks about how people used to be aware that the written word was the visible sign of an audible sign and that the audible sign was itself an event in the world, often associated with performance, and that that connection between the written and the oral has been weakened, with the oral now greatly devalued. Um, and Marie and I felt that part of the attraction Le Guin's fiction has had for translators of classical texts might be how she seems to recouple the written and the oral in the way her sentences sound, when they're read. And you have this great piece called Kamal Brathwaite and the Voice of the Caribbean, where you quote Brathwaite as saying, the African presence in Caribbean literature cannot be fully or easily perceived until we redefine the term literature to include the non-scribal material of the folk oral tradition, which on examination turns out to have a much longer history than our scribal tradition. And you continue by saying that for Brathwaite, the key to understanding the Caribbean was to accept and study its orality. And I think of orality in relation to what Le Guin was speaking to regarding the grammar bullies, how vernacular language is seen as lesser than, and at best is a stepping stone toward properly speaking a language. Um, but also think of what a recent guest on between the covers, uh, said poet Dion Brand says, um, the written record is the record of the conqueror, but there is another record, the record of the body, the record of the lives lived, and the record of the recollections of those lives lived. I guess I wondered if you could return after, after we've had this conversation now to Brathwaite and your thoughts about orality in your own writing life. I think that Brathwaite is such an interesting figure to talk about in Caribbean literature, I think most overtly, but also in an African-American context as well, because in, in the quote that you mentioned, right, Brathwaite is 
noting that the oral traditions have lived a lot longer, but also the oral traditions, they are indelibly represented, not fully, but to some degree, in, in the scribal traditions. But the link between those two today has almost wholly been severed. When you consider the ways that our technologies tend to sort of ask us to not have attention spans that are very long, and, and you sort of pair that with the attention required to listen to something orally, you know, it, it sort of becomes a, a bit clearer why the oral tradition feels kind of radical today. In other words, to go to a reading, to go to an act of oral storytelling requires that you give your attention uh, wholly to somebody who is doing something very different from the dominant mode of literary consumption today. And that's difficult sometimes, <laughs> but it's also rewarding. And I, I think Brathwaite knew that the only way to really emphasize to readers that the oral tradition was something radical, but also something potentially difficult to fully grapple with, was to try to reproduce strangeness, to try to reproduce something odd on the page itself. So what I mean by this is that Brafate's work, or at least his most, his best known work, is quite literally visually strange. He calls this his uh, Sycorax video style, uh, a style that uh, nods in its name to to uh, the mother of, of Caliban in The uh, Tempest. And the, the video part of this sort of refers to this sense of new technologies uh, at the time that Raphael was writing, uh, new ways of seeing, new ways of consuming, uh, new ways of listening. So when you look at Brathwaite's poetry, you know, it's all over the page. It's, make, it, it's, it's a visual experience, but it's also an oral experience because when you read it aloud, you begin to hear re repetitions sometimes that you don't always fully realize until you start to read them aloud. You begin to hear rhythms. You begin to hear things that, that, that are not just as obvious when you're just reading them on the page. So the larger point I'm trying to make is that for a writer like Brathwaite, reading something aloud can allow you to access something that's a little bit different from just reading it on the page. I, I don't know that that's always true of every piece of writing that exists, but I do think the way we encounter it uh, certainly can influence very strongly how we feel about um, anything from the rhythm of its sentences to even how, what you think about its characters. So listening to something orally versus reading it, I think can strongly influence every aspect of what our encounter with a piece of art feels like. Yeah. Well, to return one last time to Le Guin, 
naming and gender. It feels like we at least have to mention a story of hers called Nine Lives, um, partially at least because it was published in Playboy and where Playboy was worried that their readership would be nervous about reading a story by a woman. So they published Le Guin's story with her first initials and last name so that people could presume she were a man. Um, the only time she did this in her career, the only time she acquiesced to this, and which she later wished that she hadn't. Uh, weirdly, it's also a story that President Lyndon Johnson found in Playboy and loved and heavily endorsed, which led to its popularity. Is about these two miners, Alvaro and Owen, on a distant planet. Earth is still around, but largely wrecked. And a set of 10 clones arrive to help them with a mining project. They are all named John Chow, but have different middle names. They were cloned from a genius who was a biomathematician and a cellist and an undersea hunter interested in structural engineering who died before he had worked out his major theories. And the idea is that 10 people cloned from the same person will work better as a team when doing these mining expeditions, but particularly so if cloned from this particular genius guy. So these 10 genetically identical people make up a team who are all individually trained differently from each other. But what is wild is the 10 clones are half women and half men, all named John Chow and all who have non-monogamous recreational sex with each other when they're not working. And here's how they explain how they could all be clones and yet half women and half men. Uh, the different clones are referred to by their middle names, which are different Hebrew letters. First is Gimel speaking about the man they are cloned from. He died at 24 in an air car crash. They couldn't save the brain, so they took some intestinal cells and cultured them for cloning. Reproductive cells aren't used for cloning since they have only half the chromosomes. Intestinal cells happen to be easy to despecialize and reprogram for total growth. All chips off the old block, Martin said valiantly. But how can some of you be women? Beth took over. It's easy to program half the clonal mass back to the female. Just delete the male gene from half the cells and they revert to the basic, that is, the female. It's trickier to go the other way, have to hook in artificial Y chromosomes, so they mostly clone from males, since clones function best bisexually. I have no idea if this tracks or not with what we know about cloning in biology, but I love the spirit of this, and it makes me think of how Le Guin herself, as a person, is kind of trying to delete the male gene in her own writing and to find a different way to write as a woman, something that I explore with her biographer, Julie Phillips, when we're talking about the writing mother, that Le Guin recognizes something about how feminists are critiquing her as being true and wants to figure out a new mode of writing that reflects her own subject position as a writer. And one of the things that I think makes Le Guin this fascinating subject for this series, and as a writer in general, is, is this mix, which you've also referred to in your own experience, her mix of being visionary and limited at the same time. But someone who ultimately seems maybe visionary in relation to her limits that almost make the limits seem like assets. 
And I love how so much of your own writing is about imperfect, complex artists and writers, and you don't reduce them to their worst qualities, but sort of hold all of it together. I was hoping you would speak to James Baldwin for us in light of Le Guin's, what I would call Le Guin's gender journey. I have always thought of Toni Morrison and James Baldwin as writers who who seem fully formed in some way, that they were just purely visionary. Um, so I was surprised and super fascinated by the conversation, by several conversations of yours, where you talk about um, the conversation that Baldwin had with Audre Lorde, where she critiques him around not recognizing the ways he has power as a man. And, and in this conversation, which I went and looked for, she constantly very graciously keeps giving him these off ramps to exit his position, but he keeps doubling down on, on the black man being the bottom of the hierarchy. And that while she says she can't imagine what it must be like to be a black man, he presumes to say he can understand being a woman. And I would love to, for you to maybe frame this as you have before in other talks in relationship to a very, a late novel of his, which you've, you've suggested maybe in response to um, taking some of Audre Lorde's um, criticisms to heart. This, this is a really complicated uh, subject, but one that I think is well worth unpacking. I want to just firstly say that, yes, I, I always try in my writing to try to hold this idea of people as complicated beings, as beings who are in flux. To be completely honest, I, I would never want to reduce somebody simply to a mistake that they made or, or conversely to, uh, to something re remarkable that, that they did. Because everybody is far more interesting to me when viewed as beings who don't always understand what it means to be anything other than themselves, because at the end of the day, that's all of us. We only know really what it's like to be in our own shoes, much as we try and try to do the opposite. So with that as, as a bit of, of a preface, Baldwin was intensely interested in understanding what it meant to be perceived by others particularly white Americans, but, but also by white Europeans, uh, particularly when he was in, in France, you know, as a black man. And, and to a lesser degree, but certainly no less important of a degree, uh, as a uh, queer man as well. So when Baldwin started writing fiction, he first went a slightly more conventional route of talking about Black Americans in Harlem, uh, or, or more specifically uh, throughout uh, Manhattan, uh, but also, you know, in Go Tell It on the Mountain, where we're, we're going uh, to other parts of America as well, when we explore the characters' pasts. And this was material that Baldwin had lived, you know, growing up the uh, stepson of a uh, preacher, but but in in Baldwin's uh, most famous queer novel, Giovanni's Room, 
Baldwin uses a protagonist who is a, a white man uh, named David in uh, Europe. And we, we have this very interesting situation where Baldwin tries to get this published and his publishers initially don't want to release this book under his name because they think this is not a James Baldwin book. This is about a white gay man. What will your readers think? And interestingly enough, the first publication of the book, if I remember this correctly, did not even have his author photograph because there was this fear that if readers knew the identity of the writer of this book, if his picture was there, they they would not read it. So 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 Baldwin had already been pigeonholed at this early point of his career uh, in terms of what he was expected to be able to write. I bring up all of this as a preface because I, I think it informs this discussion of Audre Lorde to some degree, uh, and also that late book that you're referring to, which I believe is uh, If Beale Street Could Talk. I, I think that Baldwin, you know, had a strong desire to feel that he understood what it was like to be the other, because in so many ways, Baldwin did understand what it was like to be seen as the other, as a Black man, as a queer man, also as somebody who uh, cast aside his religion, as somebody who widely uh, self-described as as ugly. I've never thought that Baldwin was ugly, but he strongly believed he was hideous because his father, his stepfather, described him as such. And this was a complex that you can see in Baldwin's writing reproduced over and over. So with all of that in mind, I think Baldwin had a strong desire to try to understand what it was like to inhabit the experiences of those who were different from him. In in If Beale Street Could Talk, he famously has a, a female protagonist, and I, I think it's actually a very interesting depiction of life as a young, pregnant Black woman. It's, 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 a, it's a remarkable book. N- not a book without flaws, but a book that I think is, I, I don't know, it, it, it's one of my favorite uh, of his, his novels. One of his most accessible, I, I think, perhaps. And uh, certainly one that is trying something complicated. But I think Audre Lorde was also right to note that he didn't always know what it was like to inhabit the experiences of of others. Baldwin often believed he knew what it was like to be just Black in general, as as if that was a sort of blank slate. But, but, But it's not, you know, what it's like to be a Black woman, what it's like to be a Black man, what it's like to be Black or non-binary, these are all distinct. And, and that's true of, of anybody of any identity anywhere in, across time and space. You know, we all inhabit a positionality that is unique. And, and so we, we can't overstep our boundaries by saying we know exactly what it's like to be somebody else without... Uh, potentially getting something wrong. And I think Baldwin didn't want to be told that he was getting something wrong. Uh, 
which is why I think that exchange of Audrey Lord is so fascinating. It really and I is. think you're right to say that she was a bit generous uh, there. But but I also think Baldwin, uh, I, I think he genuinely tried to inhabit what it might mean to be the other. I, I do have moments in my writing where I talk about where I think he did not do this successfully. There's a moment in Giovanni's room in particular where he talks about uh, people who might be trans uh, in a way that is very, I don't know, it, it, it almost feels uh, akin to Heart of Darkness, the, the, the way that Conrad described the non-white uh, inhabitants almost as if they weren't human. And there's a moment in Giovanni's room where that happens uh, as well. But But with that said, I mean, I think that's part and parcel of understanding Baldwin, not as a sort of like single issue writer, but as a complicated writer who sometimes got things wrong. Yeah. I think that's important to keep in mind. Yeah. Well, as we're coming near an end, I just, I wanted to stay with this question of, of imagining into the, into the position of the other. Um, I think one of the ways we could look at your writing across pieces is about whether we can see the other, accommodate the other in our language and accommodate the things, the uncanny and strange things that can't be named, um, your interest in cosmic plurality and the question of whether we are special as a species and can we handle it if we aren't, your writings on Edward Gorey and the power of the ineffable and how he hated explanation and why he both never denied being attracted to men and refused to name his desires because labels repulsed him. I think of this when I think of the story I just referenced, Nine Lives, because when nine of the ten clones die in a mining accident, and suddenly there's only one of the clones left, um, the nine people who knew him so well are gone. He sort of has to decide whether to live or not among difference, among people who they only partially can know. Um, but even more, I think, of the of the third engagement with Left Hand of Darkness at the Tip Tree Symposium by the trans writer Aaron Izura, who is in a long-term partnership with another trans person um, and was going to stop long-standing testosterone in order to get pregnant, which of course made them mention the pregnant king line in Left Hand of Darkness, but they were more interested in questions of care and division of labor, of how they and their partner could possibly parent as equals. They say of the left hand of darkness, of the world of left hand of darkness, because everyone can quote unquote be tied down to childbearing in this world, no one is quite so thoroughly tied down. No one is quite so tied down as women are elsewhere, and no one is quite as free as men are elsewhere. Writing biological or anatomical reproductive differentiation on Gethin as fundamentally transitory, and the critique of the modern gendered and racialized divisions of sexual labor, emotional labor, and caring labor. This is what makes Aaron stay with this text as an utopian text. Um, that unlike other feminist utopias at the time, in the left hand of darkness, people don't transcend care and bodily labor or outsource production to machines. But what I liked best about this essay was about Genli, 
the visitor who we've mentioned is um, mistrustful and has uh, prejudices, who, who completely distrust Estrovan, the one person who understands Genli's situation, who shares his objectives, who eventually saves his life. Genli can't see that he's not alone in this situation, that the person he perceives as his enemy is actually his friend, that he he can't get past Estrovin's gender ambiguity as alien and thus not trustworthy, but that through shared labor, they find a place of nurturing and care. Ultimately, the article goes on to the conclusion that we can't revolutionize gender if gender is talked about separately from the political economy, from the production of borders, nationhood, about racialization, that the communization of care really is about embracing vulnerability. And in that spirit of imagining us into a better otherwise and elsewhere, I kind of wanted us to go out with an alternating reading from an essay by Le Guin called Telling is Listening. But first, if did you have any any last thoughts you wanted to say before we did? Just really quickly that I think it's so fascinating to me to try to imagine what it's like to be, to be completely honest, anybody or anything that is not me. And that this impulse that we're talking about, right, you know, whether or not you can understand the other is something that I think is probably always going to be inescapably complex because there are power dynamics that come into play when we talk about inhabiting the perspectives of the other. The fact that this has been wielded for racism, for sexism, for homo and transphobia. Uh, I think it's understandable that people tend to flinch a little bit when thinking of somebody who's not from one group writing about the perspectives of another. And I, I do understand that, but I, I think very quickly that to take a step back and try to inhabit the perspectives of somebody entirely unlike you on the surface is one of the most important things that I think we can do as, as humans. And I, I like thinking of what it might be like to be a sentient crystal on a, on a distant planet. I, I use this image in my head a lot. You know, what would it be like to look up and see a sky utterly unlike mine? How would my assumptions change? How would my day-to-day change? Would I have a day at all? What is it like to be something not like me in any sense? And I think Le Guin certainly wandered this too. And I think we go some way towards healing these these inequalities by beginning to have uh, these questions uh, in, in mind. It's certainly not all of the work we need to do, but I think it's it's a beginning. Well, let's go out with a little reading from this strange and funny uh, piece of Le Guin's yes, uh, yes. Telling is Listening. In most cases of people actually talking to one another, human communication cannot be reduced to information. The message not only involves, it is, a relationship between speaker and hearer. 
The medium in which the message is embedded is immensely complex, infinitely more than a code. It is a language, a function of a society, a culture, in which the language, the speaker, and the hearer are all embedded. In human conversation, in live, actual communication between or among human beings, everything transmitted, everything said is shaped as it is spoken by actual or anticipated response. Live, face-to-face human communication is intersubjective. Intersubjectivity involves a great deal more than the machine-mediated type of stimulus response currently called interactive. It is not stimulus response at all, not a mechanical alternation of pre-coded sending and receiving. Intersubjectivity is mutual. It is a continuous interchange between two consciousnesses. Instead of an alternation of roles between box A and box B, between active subject and passive object, it is a continuous intersubjectivity that goes both ways all the time. My private model for intersubjectivity, or communication by speech, or conversation, is amoebas having sex. As you know, amoebas usually reproduce by just quietly going off in a corner and budding, dividing themselves into two amoebas. But sometimes conditions indicate that a little genetic swapping might improve the local crowd, and two of them get together, literally, and reach out to each other and meld their pseudopodia into a little tube or channel connecting them. The amoeba A and amoeba B exchange genetic information. That is, they literally give each other inner bits of their bodies via a channel or bridge, which is made out of outer bits of their bodies. They hang out for quite a while, sending bits of themselves back and forth mutually responding each to the other. This is very similar to how people unite themselves and give each other parts of themselves, inner parts, mental, not bodily parts, when they talk and listen. You can see why I use amoeba sex, not human sex, as my analogy in human heterosex. The bits only go one way. Human heterosex is more like a lecture than a conversation. Amoeba sex is truly mutual because amoebas have no gender and no hierarchy. I have no opinion on whether amoeba sex or human sex is more fun. We might have the edge because we have nerve endings, but who knows? Two amoebas having sex or two people talking form a community of two. People are also able to form communities of many through sending and receiving bits of ourselves and others back and forth continually through, in other words, talking and listening. Talking and listening are ultimately the same thing. When you speak a word to a listener, the speaking is an act, and it is a mutual act. The listener's listening enables the speaker's speaking. It is a shared event, intersubjective. The listener and speaker entrain with each other. Both the amoebas are equally responsible, equally physically immediately involved in sharing bits of themselves. Sound is dynamic. Speech is dynamic. It is action. To act is to take power, to have power, to be powerful. Mutual communication between speakers and listeners is a powerful act. 
The power of each speaker is amplified, augmented, by the entrainment of the listeners. The strength of a community is amplified, augmented, by its mutual entrainment in speech. This is why utterance is magic. Words do have power. Names have power. Words are events. They do things, change things. They transform both speaker and hearer. They feed energy back and forth and amplify it. They feed understanding or emotion back and forth and amplify it. The living tongue that tells the word, the living air that hears it, bind and bond us in the communion we long for in the silence of our inner solitude. It was such a great experience to spend these hours together. Thank you so much for having me. We've been talking today to writer and editor Gabrielle Bellot. See you next month for another episode of Crafting with Ursula. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. More of Gabrielle Bellot's work can be found at gabriellebellot, B-E-L-L-O-T, dot com. If you enjoyed today's conversation, consider transforming yourself from a listener to a listener-supporter. Learn about the potential gifts and rewards of doing so at patreon.com slash between the covers. These include the bonus audio archive with readings from everyone from Daniel Jose Older to N.K. Jemison, Ted Chang to Carmen Maria Machado. There are also rare Le Guin collectibles, the possibility of joining the Tin House early reader subscription, receiving 12 books over the course of a year months before they're available to the general public, and much, much more. Again, you can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can also do this by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank Arwen Curry for the audio of Ursula from the documentary Worlds of Ursula K. Le Guin that is featured in our introduction. William Anthony for the photograph of Ursula used in the banner. Tin House's Alice Evelyn Yang for the graphic design. Becky Kramer and Jay Nichelle for publicity. And Theo Downs Le Guin for being a bottomless well of ideas and insights and support. And finally, the music you hear called River Song and the music in the introduction, Heron Song, come from the collaborative album by Todd Barton and Ursula Le Guin called Music and Poetry of the Kesh. Thanks to Todd Barton for granting permission for its use. See you next month for another episode of Crafting with Ursula.